want to give you a little update on, um, on Haiti. For those that weren't with us last week, I mentioned that our, our church has partnered with a Haitian ministry called El Shaddai Ministries International for uh, at least the past eight or ten years. And we have a close working relationship with uh, two brothers, Donnie and Louis St. Germain, who are both pastors, church planters. They've uh, helped to, their network has planted 124 churches in Haiti. They grew up in Haiti. They were educated in America, and uh, they are very gifted, uh, gifted fellows. And Donnie and Louis both have preached here. Um, last week I mentioned that, that El Shaddai uh, is, ministers to about 6,000 people through those 124 churches as well as they, they network with a lot of the, um, the local governments in some of the hardest-hit towns and cities like Jeremy, uh, which is on the west tip uh, in the north, and, and then, then uh, Lakai's, the city on the coast in, in the southern part of, of Haiti. And we t- just, I ask you if you want to give money to help buy food because that was the, the, the urgent need uh, last weekend was food, and I mentioned that uh, a truckload of food, Don, I'd spoken to Donnie on the phone, and he said $12,000 would provide one truckload, and I said, well, uh, in, you know, I, I said, what if we could come up with $30,000, and the reason I had that figure is because the Jones Foundation here in town had said we will do a matching gift of $15,000 with First Presbyterian Church. If we could raise fifteen. They would give 15 and, and we'd send it. And yet, you went far above and beyond. Uh, by Tuesday uh, by Tuesday afternoon, I think you, uh, not even counting the matching gift, had, had given well over $30,000. And so we were able to wire on Wednesday, Tuesday or Wednesday, uh, roughly uh, about forty-five dollars or $46,000 to ESMI. So this week, you that gave, I want to thank you. I know you didn't do it for any recognition. I don't know who gave what. I don't know if two people or 200 people gave the money. But you helped feed, uh, uh, well, thousands of people. Last night, Donnie posted uh, a brief video from his phone and said that they are, have, are networked with 348 pastors, I believe, in the, in the northern part where they're working of Haiti on the western end and 500 pastors in the southern. And they're working with local governments and now that Samaritan's Purse and Global uh, Orphan Project and many other NGOs and ministries are there, they're shifting their emphasis this week. They've got medical teams that have come in and are coming in and they're going to start putting roofs back on houses. And so he's still asking for us to give, but we are one of uh, uh, really less than 20 churches that partner with them. And now it's to buy the, uh, the zinc roofs and the two-by-fours to put roofs back on the houses. So I wanted to give you that update. It, it should be encouraging. Your gifts make a difference, uh, a very tangible difference to thousands of people even, even over the past few days. Now, I'm filling in for Dr. Kruger. Some of you may have come here today thinking you're going to hear him. And as I sat on the platform before the first service, I remembered something that had been said by one of our guest preachers in the past. Dr. Norman Geisler was here for a conference. Dr. Geisler is a brilliant man and authored numerous books, and his area of expertise is ethics and apologetics. But I remember him standing here when he was speaking. He spoke several nights in a row, 
and he told about how he had gone to a church one time and the main speaker couldn't make it so they had him to fill in and he made the comment he said I'm a little bit like that window up there and they had these windows and one of the panes of glass was broken out and they had put cardboard in that one one where that pain had gone and he said I, I feel this morning kind of like that substitute pain up there you wanted something else and yet you got me and so he said that he made that comment and when he was leaving a woman came up to him and said you know Dr. Geisler you're wrong you're not a substitute you were a real pain <laughs> so on Thursday when uh, we began to suspect that Dr. Kruger, though he tried, couldn't make it, uh, I decided I w since next week is Commitment Sunday, I, I wanted to bring a message about the subject of giving. It's not a tithing sermon. It it's an observation of a, a small gift that was given by a per person in the New Testament and how Christ complimented it. So I hope you'll take a Bible and turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, and I'll be reading just the closing verses of that chapter. Now, as you're turning to that, I'll remind you that the Gospel of Mark uh, is the briefest of the four chapters. It has 16 chapters in it. The last eight chapters, the second half of the Gospel of Mark, deal with the last two weeks of Jesus' ministry on earth. And so he moves quickly, Mark moves quickly through the public ministry of Jesus over eight chapters, but then he really slows down and begins to zero in on, on Jesus' public teaching and the events leading up to the crucifixion. Uh, I'll begin reading in verse 35 through the end of the chapter. And as Jesus taught in the temple... He said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray together. Our Father, when it comes to the area of giving, we, we uh, find it complex, and it gets complicated what, how to handle money, uh, what, how much to, to give away, how much to spend, how much to save, and, and what to give it to, and, and how much are we spending on our own needs, and where's the balance. And so we pray that you'd speak to us now as we look into your word, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In verse 35, verses 35 and following, as Jesus is teaching in the temple, he, he asked the questions to what have become basically his enemies 
throughout his public ministry, but especially in the last two weeks of it, the tension with the Jewish religious leaders that you could cut with a knife. And it will, it will lead to his crucifixion. But his teaching times were, were not very pleasant, and there was tension. And so he asked a question to his detractors. And he says, how is it that David, who had lived long before, uh, is able to say that his son is his Lord? And the Lord said to my Lord, he quotes, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. What was Jesus doing? He's expounding the Old Testament scriptures to these people in, in the temple, these scribes, these, these Jewish lawyers. It means that they handled the Old Testament law. They were experts in the Old Testament law. Uh, how could the great king of King David speak of his son as his Lord, he asked in verse 37. So Jesus is not asking a trick question. He's asking a serious one. He's trying to make them see who the Messiah is. David's son could only be his Lord if he, the son, had existed before David had existed. And Jesus doesn't tell them the answer. He leaves it as an open-ended question for them to answer. How is it that David said that? And then he goes on to expose the false teachers. Now, the, the men he's talking about as hypocrites are, in his, are within earshot. And he begins to warn about these hypocritical false teachers of the law. In verses 38 and following, he says they are selfishly ambitious men. They, they use their followers to fulfill their own ambitions. They, they like to be attractive with the trappings of men, the flowing robes, which were signs of power, the praise of men, greeting them in the marketplace. And then in verse 39, he says these false teachers are proud men. They love to have the best seats, he says, and sit at the table with the, the top people in both the secular and religious life. Verse 40, he says these are greedy. These are greedy teachers. They they made wealthy widows their prey, and perhaps even poor ones too. These were women whose husbands had during their lifetimes helped to support them and make major decisions. Now that's gone, and these women fell prey in some sense to these wicked men masquerading as servants of God. And so without going into detail, Jesus just exposes them as greedy and seeking power and caring nothing about the glory of God. They only care about themselves. Now, those words, when he finishes in verse 40, that is the end of Jesus' public ministry. He doesn't give any more uh, public uh, speeches or teaching from this point on in Mark. And so he goes outside of the temple now, and I want us to focus on what happens here at the end of the chapter. Having finished his teaching in the temple, he, he sits down in the outer court. It would be like this fenced area, a fence with this concrete brick wall, stone wall that would have been there. And he sits down where there are these many visitors to, who've come to the temple. And what is about to happen will be in stark contrast to what he has just described about the false teachers. Now, this is Jerusalem, and it was the time of the Passover, so the population of Jerusalem would swell. I understand that about 50,000 people lived in Jerusalem at this time. During the time of the Passover, that 50,000 would swell to a quarter of a million, 250,000. 
pilgrims, you might say, from all over the world would come to be in Jerusalem during the time of the Passover. And among those multitudes would have been many who were wealthy. And they would have brought donations to the temple. And here's how the donations worked, from what I've read. On two of the walls there at the temple were a total of 13 receptacles. And these receptacles were funnel-shaped, and they were made out of metal. And on each of the 13 receptacles was a Hebrew letter. And that letter signified what your donations in that receptacle would go for. It was designated giving. Like, you want to give it to missions? You want to give it to the building fund? It would be, do you want, to, you want your giving to go for sacrifices or for incense or for wood? So you could decide where to give it. Now, given the fact that they were metal receptacles and the offerings primarily were in coins, it would be obvious who gave a lot. It would be loud. Bang, wow, you know, and somebody pouring in lots, lots of money. Well, Jesus is sitting there, and he's watching people put money into these receptacles, and he saw many rich people, it says in verse 41, putting in large amounts. He doesn't condemn that. There's nothing wrong with that. But as Jesus observes, the point of emphasis becomes not the amount of the gift, but rather what was the motivation and what is the heart of the giver. He saw not only what they put in, he knew, being the divine God-man, why they put it in there. And this becomes very clear in verse 42 when he says, and it says, Mark tells us, a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. So here comes this, this woman. She drops in an amount with these two coins that for all practical purposes, was insignificant. Almost worth, worthless, but what she does is priceless. And he calls the disciples to him in verse 43. And he says, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had all she had to live on. Now, I just want to draw a couple of lessons from this, this passage. I first, I first studied this passage and I think taught on it 25-plus uh, years ago. And the last time I think I taught on this was over 10 years ago. But the more I have read this, the more questions I have. I thought I understood it. But now... I, I'm not so sure, as you'll see, because I, I have lots of questions about why Jesus compliments what this woman did. But let me make a point, and then I'll give you my questions. The first point is Jesus sees our giving, and he knows our hearts. And to some people, that may terrify you. Uh, to others, it may, I hope, give great comfort. He knew the attitude with which this woman was giving. Uh, only Christ could know that. And she does this as an act of trust. Apparently, she didn't give begrudgingly. She wasn't being forced to do this. The rich who gave large sums of money, those were generous gifts, but there's no indication that those gifts were sacrificial. There's no indication they gave from grateful hearts. Uh, perhaps even in the worst possible light, perhaps it was just a show to be seen by other people. 
And they could have done that with those receptacles. I, I don't know if, if the local grocery stores like Kroger still have those change machines. Do they still have those? Okay, I'm hearing it from those with young kids because that's when we used to use it. I had this big jar at home. And every, and, and every year or two, that jar would pretty much fill up with, with change. And uh, I'd take one of the kids when they were young, and we'd go to Kroger. And, and yeah, it takes a while. you got to want it to do that, you know, to put all that, those coins in there. And, and it's loud. It, at least back then it was. All, all over, you can bang, 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 you know, as this machine is counting this money. And so it, I would imagine if you stood there and for about five minutes, you'd think that person put a lot of money in. Well, when they dumped in these large offerings into these metal receptacles, it would have been obvious from the noise whether it was a large gift. Now, the Bible teaches we can give with a variety of motives. One way we can give is, is I have to. And in Corinthians, that's called grudge giving. Well, I have to. If I don't do this, God will get me. Uh, you know, I, I know I've heard these warnings. You don't tithe. My, my transmission will blow up. You know, the, the roof will leak. We'll, we'll, we'll have some problem in the house. Or duty giving. Well, I ought to do this. This is just, you know, part of the commitment of being a church member or what I'm supposed to do or I'm, it's expected of me by someone somewhere. But the highest form of giving is joyful giving or thanksgiving, which is I want to. So we should ask ourselves as we give, what type of giving is mine? Is it grudge giving? Is it duty giving? Or is it thankful giving? Now I want it to encourage you because even if the amount is insignificant, God sees what's involved. And he sees and knows your sacrifice. And he sees that gift that may look small in the world's eyes that could have gone to buy uh, a new pair of shoes or, or something else that you feel that you need or, or a set of tires for the car or whatever it might be. You can tell I'm a man. I talk cars, right? Mechanical things. Um, he sees all your giving and he knows your heart. And so I, th I hope that gives comfort to you. Now, here's my questions. Here's where I have tension with this passage. How do we see this as something responsible that this woman did? What I mean is, as a pastor, if I was contacted by a widow in our church and she said, Chip, I, I want to ask some spiritual, I want to bounce an idea off of you and you tell me what you think as my pastor, uh, I'm feeling that God has led me to liquidate everything I have and give it away. I can promise you as a pastor, I would not say I think that's a good idea. In fact, I would say, now, how have you arrived at that decision? Uh, giving a portion is one thing, but giving all, that's another. Let me now get a little more personal. Men, if your mom is a widow and still living, mine is not, but if my mother had called me, if your mother calls you and says, son... I'm thinking about giving away everything I have. How do you think that phone call would go from that point on? Would you encourage her in that? Would you say, Mom, I'm just, boy, I know that that widow in Mark chapter 12, I just think that's great. I know I won't get anything now in an inheritance, and I know the family, and, but, but this is wonderful. Just give it all away. I doubt if there's a person here 
that would say that's a good idea. That's the tension I've had with this passage. Now, let me tell you this. You need to know. Very respected Bible expositor, J.C. Ryle, from the 1800s. Many of you have read different books he wrote. But I was reading his commentary on Mark, and he referred back to a number of church scholars that they think this this should be translated, or from the original language, that it could mean she gave everything she had to live on for that day. It's not like she gave every bit of property or clothes and everything else. Regardless, so whether it's at least what she had for that day that would have provided her food and, and drink and so forth, or whether it was everything, they're both sacrificial. They're both sacrificial. So whether she was just fasting all day, so I'm going to give what I would have had for food today, but I'm going to go without food and fast, and I'm going to give all that I have for today into the treasury. I don't think it makes that much of a difference. But here, all right, now, Chip, where are the questions? Here's the questions. Doesn't the Bible teach us to save? Yes, Proverbs 6, 6, it uses the ant as an example. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways, be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. There's an example that, that we have in Proverbs that, of the ant, that the ant prepares while there's food for times when there will not be food. We see the example with Joseph reading the dreams of, of Pharaoh and saying there's a famine coming in seven years, so you should store up store up over these seven years to prepare to have food for those seven years when there will be no harvest. So we see that saving is not a bad thing. The Bible even commends it. And it nowhere, the scriptures nowhere say that we have to impoverish ourselves if we're to be true disciples of Christ. He did call, the, Jesus did call the rich young ruler to sell everything he had, give it to the poor, and come and follow him. But the purpose of that was to reveal to the rich young ruler that he had the idolatry of materialism in his life to which he wasn't aware. And he walked away sad. Jesus put his finger right on the area of the Lord of that young man's life, which was his possessions. But we, don't, we can't turn to places in the Bible and it, and it tells us liquidate everything. You may choose to do that, but there's no command to do that. Scripture tells us to be faithful stewards, faithful managers of what God entrusts to us. So my point is, I would never have advised that woman to give everything she had away to the temple or anywhere else. So why is Jesus complimenting it? I joke that, well, I'll, I'll pick it up here next week. No, I, I'm going to answer that question. To be a widow, especially in that day, was the ultimate position of insecurity. Women as a whole were looked down on in the first century in the Roman world. They often had little or no income. A widow had no social security, no life insurance, and yet this one was a poor widow. It's not that her husband had left lots of money. So strictly from a financial standpoint, this, re this woman had every reason not to give. And yet, she knew, I believe, this Jewish woman who came to the temple to show she was devout, she would have known the Old Testament teachings about God and widows. And there are many promises in the scriptures 
such as Exodus 22, you shall not afflict any widow. Deuteronomy 10, the ex that God executes justice for the orphan and the widow. Psalm 68, 5, God promises to be a father to the fatherless and a judge for the widows. Psalm 146, 9, the Lord protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow. Where are you going with this, Chip? Here's where I'm going. I believe Jesus complimented what she did because her giving was not an act of irresponsibility. It was not like, well, I'm just going to give it all away. Without any prayer, without any counsel, her giving was a step. It was action of obedience and trust in God's promises. That's what it was. She knew that God would provide for her. And so her sacrificial giving was based on the fact that she believed those promises of God. And by giving, she knew God will provide for me. And Christ compliments what she does, and that that is far more important than the large gifts that were being given for lesser motives by the wealthy in that case. So how does that apply to us? What the Bible teaches is sacrificial giving. And for some, that's a lot. It would take a lot before you're really out at the edge. For some, it may not be, there may not be much margin there at all. And the question becomes, can I believe that God will take care of me? Jesus deals in the Sermon on the Mount with the two reasons why we have a hard time giving. And that is worry and feelings of, will I be able to take care of myself if I give? And so he says, do not let, each day has enough trouble of its own, don't worry about what will happen tomorrow. And then he also says, you're worried about clothes and longevity of life and food. Look at the birds. Look at the flowers of the field. He deals with both of those issues in the Sermon on the Mount. And then at the end of that section, he says the famous verse, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So when I give and I say, Man, this money could go for something else. Or we've got these needs here. Or I've got this. God sees it, and I want to give in faith and say, Lord, I want to trust you. And you've made some promises to me as your follower that if I seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, then you will take care of this. You will take care of me. It's not a promise that God's going to, you give a dollar and he gives you back $100. We're not talking about the prosperity gospel, but he's promised to take care of us. So our giving should be an act of faith, it should be an act of trust, and it should be an act of generosity. R.G. Letourneau was an example from a previous generation of a man who understood God's purpose for blessing him financially. R.G. Letourneau was an inventor of earth-moving machines. And he reached the point in his giving where he was giving away 90% of his income to the Lord's work. And he said this, I shovel out the money and God shovels it back to me, but God has a bigger shovel. So God promises then to take care of us as we give and we give sacrificially. So it's an issue of the heart. The scribes and even those that were giving to be noticed that only Christ knew, they look good on the outside. 
But Jesus saw that they didn't look good on the inside. This widow probably didn't look too good on the outside, being very poor. But she was beautiful on the inside. A few weeks ago, um, I, I can't remember, two or three weeks ago, I mentioned the conversion of General Lou Wallace, who was a Union general, a lawyer, um, and had education and, and, and privilege and became an ambassador of the United States uh, to uh, Turkey. And Lou Wallace was an agnostic, and he was challenged by another agnostic, Robert Ingersoll, to write a book to debunk Christianity. And during his research that took four years to write that book, he ends up becoming a Christian. I mentioned all that to you, and he goes on to write the book, Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ. And that book became a bestseller, the bestseller in America from the 1880s to the 1930s. And that's when Gone with the Wind became the bestseller, when it was written in the 1930s. Well, after the sermon, I got to thinking, you know, Chip, if you're going to talk about Lou Wallace, why don't you read his book? So, eBay, $16, 1887 edition. I get the thing, I open it up, and you can't see this. I I can't see this. It it looks like it's about 6.5, and it's 550 pages. So I get the book, and I said, oh, uh, I've got some things to do. I don't think this is going to work. So like any, any uh, person trying to cut corners would do, I download it from audible.com, pay the $18, and then I put it on my phone, and it says 23 hours. <laughs> Where am I going to get 23 hours? This is going to take months. That was two weeks ago, and I finished it on Thursday. I say, well, you've got a job to do. What do we pay you to do around here anyway? (laughs) Well, I made a couple of trips. had to go to Alabama one time. Barb and I drove down to Florida for two nights this past week and going down and coming back. And and when I exercise, and and I just found spare moments. And that's another lesson in and of itself, 23 hours worth. Well, here's what struck my attention about this book. And it it doesn't end the way the famous movie that won all the Oscars, the 1959 version of Ben-Hur, ends. uh, uh, Exactly. Uh, Lou Wallace writes this and becomes a Christian during the writing of it. Much of this book tells about the birth and ministry and crucifixion and death and resurrection of Jesus. And it is not lightweight fare. When he talks about the ministry of Jesus and what it meant for him to be a king, it was on the level of some of the systematic theology lectures I had in seminary. I was impressed with this guy's understanding for really what a new Christian, a young Christian of just two or three years. But without spoiling anything, in case I know you're all going to run out and buy the book and read 550 pages of small print, but it ends, it ends right the last page and a half. I'll tell you this. Um, Ben-Hur, by that time, has not only been a Christian for several years he, in, the, in the story, but a man who had worked for his father as a slave had managed the household and multiplied what wealth was left that the Romans had not stolen from it. So he's enormously wealthy, 
uh, the, the main character Ben-Hur is. He has a family now. And Nero has become the emperor, and the persecution of Christians is going on in Rome, according to the story. So Ben-Hur, Judah Ben-Hur, is wondering uh, about what he can do to help with the situation back in Rome. And he has a conversation with this, this Christian man who's been the manager, the slave, who's been the steward over all the resources and managed it and multiplied his wealth. And the man says to him, and I wrote it down, Son of her, the Lord has been good to you in these latter years. You have much to be thankful for. Is it not time to decide finally the meaning of the gift of the great fortune now all in your hand and growing? Now, did you hear that? Is it not time to decide finally the meaning of the gift of the great fortune now all in your hand and growing? He's basically saying, why has God given you all of this? And Ben-Hur responds back, I decided that long ago. The fortune was meant for the service of the giver. It's meant for the service of God. Not a part of it, but all of it. And he says, the question with me has been, how can I make it most useful in his cause? What a great question, but I thought Lou Wallace got it because many see that book as biographical, autobiographical, that he was asking himself, why has God put me in this position and given me what I have? It is to do his service that I might give to the giver. Let's pray together. Father, you've entrusted things to us, finances, talents, abilities, uh, relationships. We pray that we might be good stewards. We're, we're really amazed at this poor widow and the sacrifice she made, and yet it's complimented. It's complimented by the one who had given it to her and who was going to take care of her. We pray that we'd see that as we give, that we are, we're giving to an audience of one. We don't do this to be noticed by anyone else like the hypocrites of Jesus' day. But we want to, to be sacrificial in, in the most effective way to expand your kingdom around the world. So we pray you'd guide us and direct us as church members and as we anticipate making commitments next week. We thank you most of all for the Lord Jesus that you gave your son, that through him we can have life with you, and that as he died on the cross, he was a substitute for others. And and we can have forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life through him. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.